It's day 18 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Today, we are continuing in the book of Genesis, where we witness the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And I know we have some littles in this Bible study, so I do want to warn you that there may be some more mature topics that we are discussing today. And I'm going to tell you, I have lots of questions. I mean, I feel like I got through this chapter pretty well last year, but for some reason, I found myself asking lots of questions today. And so, we are really going to have a discussion. And so, I welcome your comments in the comment section because I feel like I need a little bit of help today. And that's what this fellowship is all about. So I'm so glad that you are here. And if you say, yeah, that's why I'm here too. I want to be able to learn from one another. Could you hit that like button for us and let us know you're in agreement with that. Also, if you are new here, let us know where you're watching from. We welcome you to this Bible study. We hope that this will be something that can add to your life. Or if you have any questions at all about this Bible study, most of it can be found in the description box or the show notes or on our website, heartdive.org. So let's go ahead and pray, get our hearts ready as we open up God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time together as family, as brothers, as sisters, but mostly as your children, Lord, who come here to know you more. That is what this life is all about, is simply to have relationship with you and to be able to shine your light to those who don't know you yet. And so I pray that we will be those vessels, Lord, who are able to be able to share with the world your love, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. And oh God, you know exactly who it is that needs to hear this word today. And so I pray that you will bring that person here, that you will open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be able to receive a message from you. Lord, will you open up doors that need to be open, close the ones that we should not be going through. Forgive us, Lord, where we have either gone through a door, where we've walked over the line, where we have stopped short, or where we have disobeyed the words that you have spoken to our hearts. But I pray that as you illuminate those things, Lord, that we will heed the prompting in our spirit and that we will make things right with you first and foremost. But if we have something to get right with other people, I pray that you help us to do that as well. May every person be open and receptive to reconcile in relationships today. Lord, I pray for marriages. I pray for the broken hearts of those who are out there, God, crying out to you and asking for you to please restore hope in any relationship, whatever that is, whether that is a husband and wife, a father and child, mother and daughter. You see the broken hearts and you hear the desperate cries. And so I just pray, Lord, that heaven will be open to that, that our prayers will not bounce off the ceiling, God, but they will go straight to your heart. Help us to know that you're with us today. And Lord, as we open up your word, I just pray that it will be nourishing and refreshing to our spirits. But I just pray the most of all that you will be blessed, Lord, by everything that we do, whether in our thoughts, in the way that we speak, or even in our actions today. We love you. We want to glorify you in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off yesterday in chapter 18 with Jesus, or God, and the two angels visiting with Abraham. And now those two angels in chapter 19 came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So remember, Lot is Abraham's nephew. He chose to live in Sodom. And the fact that he is sitting at the gate goes to show that he probably has some sort of position, whether he's a civic leader or some sort of person in the government there. But at the gate of these cities was typically the place where there was the town hall. These were where judgments were made in the city. So it was a place of leadership. And Lot clearly risen to authority. So he is right in the thick 
of all of the immorality that is going on in Sodom. If you remember, though, that it didn't just happen at once. In chapter 13, he actually looked towards Sodom and said, yes, that's the place that I want to live. Then a couple of sentences later, he went and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then in the next chapter was when he finally actually moved into Sodom. And now we see him right in the middle of it. And that is the way that compromise is. We don't ever fall into sin on accident. We walk into it step by step. It's like a slow drift. The slow drift is probably the most dangerous place that you can be in. And sadly, compromise is a thing that will ruin our testimony. We'll see that this has happened with Lot. Now, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, by the way, this is just a term of respect. He is not calling them God. Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. Why? He may have either known what might happen to them if they were to spend the night in the town, considering what we're going to read about here in just a moment, or he just simply wanted to be able to be hospitable to them, which would include protecting them. That was part of the duty of someone who was welcoming someone into their home or being hospitable to them. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Okay, I'm just gonna let you know that this know them means they wanna sleep with them. Men want to sleep with men. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So clearly Lot still has some biblical moral standards here to call these practices wicked. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. And I know everyone who reads this, especially for the first time, says, how in the world could a man give up his daughters in place of these men that he doesn't even know or give up his daughters at all? to this wickedness? Was he just so desensitized, living in the middle of immorality? Did he lose his moral compass? Or was this just his moral obligation of making sure that he cared for the people that he was being hospitable to, even if that meant at the expense of his family? I don't know. This was one of the questions I was asking today. If you have any thoughts on this, please shed some light on it. But if it is the case of desensitization, we see this happening in our own society today. Things that were once appalling is no longer. We look at it as, quote, normal, or it seems like something that's pretty acceptable in today's age. And while we definitely don't want to be hateful, we most definitely need to be aware that the call to holiness still exists. So he continues, only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. So they're basically saying, wait a minute, Lot, you're one of us. And now you're trying to judge us for what we're about to do. 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So these men went from being morally blind to now physically blind. And these angels obviously have the authority to be able to do this kind of miraculous work. Verse 12, then the men, and we're talking about the angels here, said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. So these angels are not omniscient, meaning they don't know everything. That's why they have to ask the question. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So they do have authority to cast this judgment upon the city. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, so they were only in a betrothal period, they were not quite yet married, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to just be jesting. So there we see the ruined testimony. Not only do the men have zero respect for him in the city, but also his sons-in-law just think that he's making this stuff up. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, and this word up means arise, hurry up, we don't got time. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And this punishment here is because there were no righteous left in the city. Remember when Abraham was begging God, if there are but 10 righteous, will you not destroy them? Well, clearly here, there are not even 10 righteous, except for the case of Lot, which actually in the New Testament, we will hear Peter speak about Lot and the fact that he was righteous, but he lingered. What? Why is he lingering? What is going on here? Is this mixed feelings? Is he waiting for his daughters and maybe his sons-in-law to show up? Well, lingering actually means lack of urgency. So this is a common sign of being in a backslidden state. I don't know if that is the case for Lot at this point, but you can't help but ask the question. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the danger overtake me and I die. So Lot is giving way to fear at this point. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, and the meaning of Zoar is actually little or insignificant. So while Lot is considered righteous, he definitely is headed toward unrighteousness. And perhaps this is why when God called him to higher ground, he instead is settling for the hills. His own fear got in the way of what God was calling him to do. The same way that he lingered in the city as if there was no sense of urgency to get out. And this is pretty typical of someone who is in a state of compromise or drifting. 
So he was, in a sense, hitting the snooze button on his life. And while his soul may have been saved and his body may have been saved, he ends up living a life without much significance. And I do believe that God calls us all to mountaintops. He calls us all to greater things. But many of us end up hitting the snooze button, whether it's out of fear, maybe unworthiness, or perhaps we just don't hear the alarm. So heart check. Do you hear God waking you up and calling you to higher ground? Or are you hitting the snooze button on your calling? Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now this sulfur and fire, some translations say brimstone and fire. This could have possibly been a volcanic eruption, or perhaps it was just simply supernatural. If you have any thoughts on that, let me know. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So this look back wasn't just a tiny glance back to be like, oh my gosh, what's happening? This term actually implies that she looked intently with regret. So she simply didn't want to leave Sodom. Her love for that city surpassed her desire to honor God and even to honor her husband. And this literally froze her in her tracks. And sin will do this because it has a pull on our lives and it will deceive us into thinking that a life apart from it won't be as pleasurable or as fun. And then it'll keep you shackled in compromise or wavering. But when God says, don't look back, it is with good reason. Jesus even tells us to remember Lot's wife in the end days, and that is for a purpose. Again, this is why our eyes are in the front of our heads and not on the back, right? Because if we continue to long for what was behind us and we keep on looking back, we're going to get a kink in our neck, and that's going to incapacitate us for our greater calling and deliverance. So heart check, are you looking back? or struggling to flee your old life or your old ways. Verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. So this grace on Lot's life had a lot to do with the faith of Abraham and the intercession of Abraham begging God, please don't destroy them if it is for but 10 people who might be righteous there. So sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Verse 30, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he didn't even settle in the place that he wanted to go to. He ends up in a cave. And this is a place that is dark and echoey. It's got nothing around. It's going to warp the truth whenever you are stuck in a cave. And that will ultimately lead to desperation and irrational thoughts and behavior and maybe even self-sabotage. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the first born said to the younger, our father's old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So in other words, we don't got anybody to sleep with to give us any children. 
Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. And here we go with the dangers of drinking, number one, right? I don't know if you have ever been in that place where you have awakened the next morning and regretted or maybe even didn't remember what happened the night before, but I just wondered, where in the world did they get the wine? Did they get it in Zoar, or was this part of their possessions that they grabbed before they left Sodom? Like, I got the wine! I don't know. But clearly, this is an act of desperation on their part because they are worried that there's no one to carry on their name. And remember that the inability to carry on a family name is the biggest disgrace that one could ever experience. Verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. I know this feels disgusting. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So this was not his fault. He had no clue as to what was going on. I shouldn't say this wasn't his fault. We all have a response. Responsibility. I mean, he chose to go ahead and drink and he chose to get drunk. So he has to take that responsibility, but he did not know that he was sleeping with his daughter. And we got to remember that he's just lost his wife. And so I'm sure there's a whole lot of pent up frustration in that sense. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. Anybody else shuddering right now? I'm just like, So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know. So the writer obviously needed to make this point once again, that he did not know that this was happening, when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, it's good to note here that the Moabites and the Ammonites will be constant trouble for Israel in the future. Chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. So Gerar is a Philistine city that's about 12 miles south of the Gaza Strip. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And I'm like, again, Abraham? I mean, he is telling the same lie that he did with Pharaoh, which shows that he clearly did not deal with that previous sin of bearing false witness. But before we quickly jump into Judge Judy's robe, let's do a heart check. Have you ever been tempted to lie or bear false witness out of fear? What were the consequences? And how can we avoid this in the future? I think we've all been there once or twice. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And this means he took her to be his wife, part of his harem. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman that you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, this here woman and man in the original Hebrew script actually speaks of both of them as noble man and noble wife, which shows equal to terms of both dignity and honor, which just goes to show that Sarah was highly honored in the eyes of God as well. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he did not sleep with her, thank God, because God protected both of them in that way. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me that she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, this is the first use of the actual word integrity. I know we have said that there were other words that implied integrity, but this is the first use of the word itself. 
And I feel like this is one of those words that God just keeps speaking over and over, at least to me. So I wrote it down real big in my notes. And I said, God protected even the unbelieving heart, the integrous heart. And integrity will do that for us as well. It's even in the Bible in several places that here it says it protects us from sin, but it also will bless your children. It will stabilize you. It will also be a guide. So having integrity is such an important character. So I encourage you to look it up. Look up integrity, both a description and its use in the Bible. And then ask yourself, how much weight do you put on living a life of integrity? Verse 8, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Now, this is the first use of the word prophet in the Bible as well. And I love that God has no shame. I mean, right in the middle of Abraham lying to Abimelech, God's still like, that's my man over there. He's my prophet. And he continues, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, well, I did it because I thought, well, then there's the problem right there is that he thought every sin begins with a thought. He didn't consult God on it. I thought there is no fear of God. So he thought he was in hostile territory at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. So again, half truth, really a whole lie, bearing false witness. And by the way, this wasn't looked at as such a bad thing back then because marriages within the family were actually signs of high rank, apparently. Of course, it's later prohibited by God, but at this time, it wasn't seen as something bad. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, so in a roundabout way, he's kind of blaming God, don't you think? I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham? Why? Well, I don't know. And returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your, quote, brother a thousand pieces of silver. And I can't help but think that he actually was saying brother in a very facetious manner. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated, meaning you are declared innocent. He is not blaming Sarah. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So basically, this is implying that in the presence of Sarah, he did not allow any of the women at that time to get pregnant, but now he is opening their wombs once again so that they can bear children. Chapter 21. Then the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. 
25 years ago, the promise now coming to fruition. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Isaac means laughter, or it means he is laughing. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him in the covenant. So he's being obedient to the covenant. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And so that makes Sarah 90 years old. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me in delight, by the way. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children at 90 years old, nursing a baby? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So there we see the miracle works of God. And the child grew and was weaned. Now weaning a child at this time would have been around three years old. Some people say, oh no, I think it's more like five, maybe even a little bit older, but we're going with three. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who was probably in his teens at this point, somewhere around 17, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. So he said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So she's like, I have had it with them. They are not going to take part in the inheritance. They don't deserve it. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Why? Because he loves his son. Ishmael's still his blood son. Not only that, but God said to Abraham, so this is his sixth direct message to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. So in other words, he is saying, you got to trust me. Listen to your wife. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So he's still going to bless Ishmael. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Now, this is interesting to me because remember how rich Abraham is. I mean, he's got lots of wealth and he could have sent them off with plenty of provision, yet he's only giving them a skin of water and bread, which is the bare minimum, the basic provisions. Why did he do this? Why didn't he give her more? I don't know if it is because he was simply trusting in God's provision for them, or if he was like, it's no use. Whether I give them plenty, that's just going to prolong their misery, or if I just give them this particular amount, this is going to shorten the misery in which they're going to have to endure in the wilderness. Again, if you got thoughts, let me know. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And remember, he's a teenager, but he's obviously nearing the point of death, very dehydrated. So she puts him in the shade. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and she wept. And this just broke my heart because despite the way she may have treated Sarah, she's still a mother. She's still a woman. She still loves God. And so for me, I just thought, oh, this kills me. You know, to think of watching your teenage child suffering in the desert of dehydration has got to be one of the most excruciating things for a parent to have to endure. So she cried out and God heard the voice of 
of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, so there is that word up again, like arise, get up, no time to waste. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. So here God once again is renewing his promise on Ishmael. Now he may not have had the covenant promise, but he has a promise of greatness nevertheless. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. I don't know if this was a well of water that wasn't there or if she simply didn't see it before, but he clearly is giving her the provision that they need. He is giving her this life source. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. In other words, he became a hunter, fulfilling the prophecy that was spoken about Ishmael. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So she found him a wife from her people. Now at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So because God is with Abraham and Abimelech recognizes this, he is wanting to form a treaty with him. And these are two wealthy men on equal footing, standing face to face. And this kind of treaty that he is wanting to make is known as a parity treating. This is two equal parties making this binding oath. And yet Abimelech recognizes that Abraham actually has an even greater possession. That is the presence of God. There truly is no greater blessing than to have God's presence in our lives, yet we often take it for granted. So heart check, if you were given the choice between God's presence and a life of wealth, which would you choose? Now, I know most of you probably said, I would choose God's presence, but know this, you actually have that choice because we have the gift of His presence. So are you living as if you are the richest person alive? Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So there's some sort of issue over the ownership of water rights here. And it seems like Abraham had the rights to the well. This was a big deal back in the day, the access to water. But it looks like Abimelech's people have tried to take it over. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba actually means watering place. This is a place of significance in the Bible. And take a look here at some of the things that occurred. Well, it's still a city today. And in the Bible, we will start to hear them refer to the land of Israel from Dan, which is in the north border, to Beersheba, which is the southern border of Israel. Isaac will end up redigging this well. He will build an altar here in chapter 26. Jacob actually stops here in chapter 28. 
Simeon and Judah take over this area under Joshua's leadership. Samuel's sons end up being judges here. And King Saul fortifies this city. And this also becomes the refuge place for Elijah whenever he is fleeing. So remember the name Beersheba. So he called it that because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And the fact that Abimelech received this sacrifice tells us that he was actually, okay, saying, yep, you're right. This was your well. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. So this would have been a sign or a memorial or a place of worship in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, this is the first place we see this term everlasting God, which basically means he's the master of eternity. So this is a new character that is being revealed and that will often happen whenever we find a way to worship God. That's where he reveals himself more and more to us. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And by the way, we get the word Palestine from the Philistines. So now let's take a look at some deep dive question. What does God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah say about how he views immorality? Where do you think he stands today? How do you view homosexuality and your treatment of those who may struggle with it? Why do you believe God intervened in Abimelech's potential sin with Sarah? Why do you think Abimelech gave so much to Abraham after he lied to him? What does today's reading teach you about faith, divine intervention, and provision, as well as relationships? Heavenly Father, what a beautiful display of compassion and faithfulness we were able to see today in this reading. Even in the midst of our own drifting and compromise or just outright sinning, you still have so much mercy and spare us of the judgment that we rightfully deserve. Thank you for reminding us, Jesus, of the wrath and judgment that you took on for our sake so that we wouldn't have to. And I pray that if any of us are walking into sin or even if we are in the thick of it, that in your grace, you will lead us back to you. Help us to realize where we're going wrong and to repent before it is too late, oh God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is like the angels, telling us to get up and get out of the life that will eventually destroy us. I pray that we will heed these warnings and never look back, for we know that time truly is running out. You have been so long-suffering and patient with us. Help us to share this same urgency with other people. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to even higher ground today. You are the God of the mountaintops. And while that is where you wish we could dwell, we know too that you still stoop down into the valleys and in the caves whenever we settle for less than the greatness that you have for us. Forgive us for the times that we have not trusted you, especially when we couldn't see beyond our own cave of doubt or rise up out of the echo chamber of our minds. I pray that we will be more sensitive than ever to your voice. May it ring clearer and louder than the muffled whispers of doubt that we or the devil whisper into our ears. And I thank you for continuing to love us and use us despite of our failures. You're never ashamed of us no matter what we have done. And I pray that you will also help us to move beyond condemnation from our past mistakes. I pray that we will never be so overcome by fear that we will feel the need to lie or even bend the truth. And thank you again for being the miracle worker and the promise keeper. Thank you for the gift of children, even spiritual children. We know that being given the gift of a child does not make us any more significant in your eyes, but I do pray for those who are crying out for the ability to have children. 
that you will open their wombs and bring the miracle of life into their homes. You know who they are, Lord. You hear their cries. And we thank you in advance for the beautiful children that you've already named. Help us always to trust in your provision. And even when we are in the seasons of drought, we will keep our eyes on you to guide us to that living water. You truly are the everlasting Father, and we will praise you for eternity. We love you so much. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I wanna be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm gonna end up after I die but I don't wanna live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're gonna say a prayer and I'm gonna put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're gonna say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now, as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.